0: I wanted to jump in before the episode starts to let listeners know that starting in April, Alternative Radio will be airing bi-weekly on the station instead of its usual weekly spot. We have a bunch of really interesting podcast series coming to the station, and this move will help give space to the station's volunteers and programmers who work hard to research and create content focused more on our community, city, province, and country. I know there are a lot of Alternative Radio fans out there listening to CJSW, and I understand why. The thorough research and delivery of David Barsamian and the speakers and sources featured in the show creates content that's hard to match. But part of what makes our station so unique is our ability to create podcast content that connects to the city and our community. So allowing space for the new podcast created specifically for the station will hopefully help us grow that connection even more. Alternative Radio's episodes will still be uploaded weekly to the show's page on our website, cgsw.com, as well as on the app, so make sure to keep checking there for weekly releases. I think it's important to be clear and give transparency about the rationale behind this move, but if you have any questions or concerns, feel free to send an email to podcast at cgsw.com to get in touch with me. Thank you to everybody for their continued commitment to listening to our podcast content and showing that there is space on the radio for deeper thought, knowledge, and conversation alongside amazing music. Hope you enjoy the episode.
1: look at popular attitudes, Pew does regular polling. They recently uh, ran a poll in which they asked people to rank in priority urgent issues, gave them a couple dozen choices. One choice was not even listed, nuclear war, which is as great a threat as climate change. That's considered so marginal they didn't even list it as an option. Well, climate change was there It was way down near the bottom.
2: That's Noam Chomsky, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Noam Chomsky, when lunatics run the asylum. The future of humankind and the planet are in danger from the twin existential threats of terminal nuclear war and climate catastrophe. The response? The Biden administration is following through on Pentagon plans to modernize its nuclear arsenal. Instead of eliminating these weapons of mass destruction, we are upgrading them. And the clock is ticking louder and louder on the climate emergency. The response to this crisis? A massive new oil drilling project in Alaska. Seem illogical? Not really. These are the kinds of outcomes you can expect when lunatics run the asylum. Our guest today is Noam Chomsky. He's been a leading voice for peace and social justice for many decades. The new statesman calls him the conscience of the American people. I talked with Noam Chomsky in late March. He was at his home in Arizona. It's good to see you again.
1: Always good to see you.
2: On March 20th, the UN's IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, issued its latest report. The new IPCC assessment from senior scientists warned there's little time to lose in tackling climate change. UN Secretary General Guterres said, the rate of temperature rise in the last half century is the highest in 2,000 years. Concentrations of carbon dioxide are at their highest in at least 2 million years. The climate time bomb is ticking. Then he added, We are on a highway to climate hell with our foot still on the accelerator. It is the defining issue of our age. It is the central challenge of, Of our century. So, my question to you, Noam, is you would think survival would be a galvanizing issue, but there doesn't seem to be much sense of urgency to address it in a substantial way.
1: It was a very strong statement. Good chairs. I think it should be stronger. It's not just the defining issue of this century, it's the defining issue of human history. We are now, as he says, at a point where we will decide whether the human experiment on Earth will continue in any recognizable form. Uh, We will soon, as the, the report was very stark and clear, we're reaching a point where there will be irreversible processes set into motion doesn't mean that everybody's going to die tomorrow, but it'll mean we'll pass tipping points where nothing more can be done, where it's just decline to disaster, and the disaster will be very serious. So, yes, it is a question of survival of any form of organized human society. Uh, Already many signs of extreme danger and threat almost entirely so far among the countries that have had the least smallest role in producing the disaster. Um, It's often said, it's correctly, that the rich countries have created the disaster, the poor countries are the victims. It's actually a little more nuanced. It's the rich in the rich countries who have created the disaster, and everyone else, including The poor and the rich countries are facing the problems. So what's happening? Well, take the United States. It's two political parties. One political party is 100% denialist. It's not happening. Or if it's happening, it's none of our business. The Inflation Reduction Act, basically a climate act that uh, Biden managed to get through Congress sharply whittled down from the original not a single republican voted for it no republican will vote for anything that harms the profits of the rich and the corporate sector which they abjectly serve we should remember that this is not built in you go back to 2008 mccain was running He had a small climate program, not much, but something. Congress, including the Republicans, were considering doing something about what everyone knew was an impending crisis. The Koch brothers, huge anarchist conglomerate, got wind of it. They had been working for years to ensure that the Republicans would be loyally supporting their campaign to destroy human civilization Here, there was deviation. They launched an enormous juggernaut, bribing, intimidating, uh, astroturfs, uh, lobbying a major campaign to return the Republicans to total denialism, and they succeeded. Since then, denialist party. The last uh, Republican primary, 2016, before Trump took over the party, Uh, all the top Republican figures were uh, vying for the nomination. Every single one of them, without exception, said either there's no global warming, or maybe there is, but it's none of our business. Not a sign of deviation from let's race to destruction in order to ensure that our prime constituency is as rich and powerful as possible. Now, what about the other party? There was, I think, mainly Sanders' initiative and uh, the uh, Sunrise Movement activism and others. Biden at first had a moderately decent climate program. Not enough, but a big step forward beyond anything in the past. It was cut down, step-by-step, by by 100% Republican opposition, a couple of right-wing Democrats, Manchin, Sinema, a couple others. What finally came out is the Inflation Reduction Act. It's something. But if you take a look at it, the only way it could get through is by providing gifts to the energy corporations to provide them with support for their favorite projects of expansion, provide them with subsidies, make sure that they get something. It brings to the fore the ultimate insanity of our institutional structure. You want to stop destroying the planet and destroying human life on Earth? What you have to do is bribe the rich and the powerful So maybe they'll come along. It's kind of as if uh, Mexico decided that the way to deal to prevent the cartels from killing tens of thousands of Mexicans is say, let's bribe them. Maybe if we offer them enough candy, they'll stop killing people. That's built into our institutional structure. That's savage capitalism. You want to get anything done? You have to bribe those who own the place. Maybe they'll be nice. Well, aside from the lunacy, look what's happening. Oil prices are going way out of sight. So the energy corporations have explained, sorry, boys, no more sustainable energy. We make more money by destroying you. Even BP, the one company that was beginning to do something, said, no, no. We make more profit from destroying everything, so we're going to do that. It became very clear at the Glasgow conference that John Kerry, the U.S. representative, was euphoric. He said, we've won. We now have the market on our side. Uh, we have the corporations on our side. How can we lose? BlackRock, uh, I Fink, uh, just said, look, we're going to support you. We control, I forget what it is, $130 trillion or some astronomical sum, and we're going to use it for sustainable energy. We've won. Well, there was a small footnote pointed out by political economist Adam Tooze. He said, Yes, they said that, but with a condition two conditions. One, we'll join you as long as it's profitable. Two, There has to be an international guarantee that if we suffer any loss, we're paid. The taxpayer pays. That's what's called free enterprise. It means we take risks. We make a ton of money. When there's a collapse, as there will be, you, the friendly taxpayer, come in and bail us out. We're just seeing it happen again with the banking crisis. Uh, That's free enterprise, what the libertarians tell us we should love. With this institutional structure, it's going to be very hard to get out of this. So what's the Biden administration doing? Well, let's take the Willow Project. Right now, it's opening up a major project in Alaska, which will bring online more and more fossil fuels for decades. There is what's called a positive side. This is a ConocoPhillips project, and they're using methods, known methods, to harden the permafrost. One of the great dangers is that the permafrost is melting, which covers an enormous amount of hidden fossil fuels, which will come into the atmosphere and be monstrous. So they're hardening the permafrost, big step forward. Why are they doing it? so they can use it to exploit oil more effectively. That's savage capitalism right in front of our eyes, wrote with stark clarity. It takes genius to suppress it and not to see it. But it's being done. Look at popular attitudes. Pew does regular polling. They recently uh, ran a poll in which they asked people to rank in priority urgent issues. gave them a couple dozen choices. One choice was not even listed. Nuclear war, which is as great a threat as climate change. That's considered so marginal they didn't even list it as an option. Well, climate change was there. It was way down near the bottom. Uh, Much more important was uh, the budget deficit, which is not a problem at all. But climate change was mentioned by Republicans, barely mentioned. 13% of Republicans, that's almost statistical error, thought it was an urgent problem. More Democrats, but not enough. This is a deeply propagandized society, not only on this issue, Take another issue, which is right on the front pages, Iran, nuclear programs. Sixty percent of Americans think that Iran has nuclear weapons. U.S. intelligence says, no, of course they don't. They don't have programs for them. Sixty percent of Americans think that Iran has nuclear weapons. That's more Americans than think that Israel has nuclear weapons which obviously it does. That's effective propaganda. It's astonishing. And it's not only here, you get the same things in Britain, other places. That's the world we live in. Meanwhile, to get back to the climate, yes, remember that Gutierrez also said that we have time, we know answers, We have a short time in which we can do something. That's the crucial issue. Can people who care about minimal human values, like, say, survival, can they organize and act effectively enough to overcome not only governments, but the capitalist institutions which are designed for suicide? The...
2: Biden-approved Willow Project, this massive new oil drilling in Alaska, is not a definition of lunacy. I don't know what is. But um, let me ask you also, you know, a question always comes up, and you've heard it a million times. These guys, these owners of the economy, the captains of industry, the CEOs, they have children. They have grandchildren. How can they not think of their future and protecting them rather than putting them at risk?
1: Put yourself in their chair. Let's say you're the CEO of uh, J.P. Morgan. You replace Jamie Dimon. You know perfectly well that when you fund fossil fuels, as he's doing, you're destroying the lives of your grandchildren. I can't read his mind, but I can imagine. I suspect what's going through his mind is this. Look, if I don't do this, I'll be kicked out and somebody else will be put in who will do it, because that's the nature of the institutions. The nature of the institutions is you aim for profit and market share, and if you don't do it, you're kicked out. Somebody else will come in and do it. Now, that other person who will come in is not as nice a guy as I am. I mean, I at least know that we're destroying everything, and I try to mitigate it slightly. That next guy who comes in won't give a damn. He'll just race towards destruction. So, as a benefactor of the human race, I will continue to fund fossil fuel development. That's a convincing position. And I suspect it's the position of just about all the people who are doing this. For 40 years, you know the ExxonMobil story, I don't have to review it for you. The ExxonMobil scientists were way in the lead in discovering the threats and extreme dangers of global warming. They were informing management for years that were destroying the world. It was tucked away in some drawer somewhere. 1988, James Hansen, famous geophysicist, gave public Senate testimony said, look, we're racing to disaster. The management of ExxonMobil and the other companies had to consider this. We can't just put it in the drawer anymore. They called in their PR experts and said, how should we handle this? And they gave good advice. They said, don't deny it. If you deny it, you'll be exposed right away. So don't deny it, just cast doubt. Say, maybe it's true, maybe it isn't. We haven't really looked into all the possibilities. We haven't understood sunspots, uh, some questions about cloud cover. So let's go on and just become a richer, more developed society. Small footnote, we'll make a lot more profit. We'll become a richer, more developed society. And later on, if there's any reality to this, we'll be in a better position to challenge it, to deal with it. It worked very well. That was the propaganda line. Very successful. That's effective PR. And then you get things like the Koch brothers, juggernaut, buying the Republican Party or what used to be a political party and uh, turning them into total denialists. And then you have the propaganda that suppresses it all, saying maybe it's not real, maybe it's a liberal hoax, and so on. Now, the Democrats uh, contributed to this in other ways. One of the interesting things about the recent elections is the areas in uh, along the border in Texas, Mexican-American area, areas, which were always voted, always voted Democrat, Last election, they voted for Trump. Why? What's in their minds? You can easily see. I got a job. I've got a job in the oil industry. The Democrats are saying they want to take away my job. They want to destroy my family. All because of these liberal elitists claim there's some global warming going on. Why should I believe them? Okay, can understand that. Let's vote for Trump, who wants to get rid of it all as fast as possible. At least I'll have a job and I'll be able to feed my family. What the Democrats didn't do was go down there, organize, educate, and say, look, folks, the environmental crisis is real. It's going to destroy you and your families. You can get better jobs in sustainable energy, Your families will be better off. Your children will be better off. You'll be better off. It's all true. They didn't do it. Actually, in places where they did do it, they won. One of the most striking cases is West Virginia, coal state. Joe Manchin, senator from the coal industry, is blocking everything. Uh, My friend and colleague, Bob Pollan, and his... uh, Group at the University of Massachusetts, Perry Group, have been working on the ground there. And they have succeeded in getting to the point where the mine workers themselves are calling for a transition to sustainable energy. United Mine Workers, passed resolutions, calling for it. Let's put the miners to work, capping the mines, moving towards sustainable energy projects, Government subsidy for it, which there should be, of uh, a much better world. Same was done with unions in Ohio, in California. It should not come as a great surprise. Look back at the history. The earliest active environmentalists were actually the unions, the Oil, Atomic, Chemical Energies Union, and Tony Mizaki was the leading figure. He was critical, anti-capitalist, pro-union, pro-worker organizer. He led the mine workers back in the early 70s to initiate some of the major early environmental positions. Later, he tried to organize a Labour Party, which would carry this forward. Is that inconceivable? Maybe not. Well... A lot of power sectors are opposed to it. The owners of the economy, the media, Congress are not going to like it, but popular activism could work.
2: Talk more about uh, what's going on in the banking sector uh, in view of the collapse of the Silicon Valley Bank, which was followed by Signature Bank and their problems at uh, First Republic Bank. You know, what is the role of the Fed in regulating the banking sector?
1: Well, first of all, I I don't claim any special expertise in this, but the people who do, serious economists who are also honest about it, like Paul Krugman, says very simply, we don't know. The system is designed, deeply structured, so that This goes back to uh, almost 45 years, to the deregulation mania. Deregulate finance. What's going to happen is uh, you shift to a financial-based economy, deindustrialize the country. Uh, You make your money out of finance, not out of building things. Risky endeavors, which are very profitable, but they're going to lead to a crash. When they lead to a crash, you call on the government, meaning the taxpayer, to bail you out. There weren't any major banking crises in the 50s and the 60s, the big growth period, because the Treasury Department was keeping control of the banking industry. A bank those days was a bank. You had some extra money, you put it into the bank. Somebody came and borrowed money to buy a car or send his kid to college or something. That was the banking industry. It started a little bit with Carter, but an avalanche with Reagan. And then you get people like Larry Summers saying, let's deregulate derivatives, let's throw the whole thing open. Okay, one crisis after another. The first one was early in the Reagan years, the continental Illinois a crash, which the friendly taxpayer paid for. Reagan administration ended with a huge savings and loan crisis. Again, call in the friendly taxpayer. The rich make plenty of money; they're fine. But the the rest pay the costs. It's what Bob Pollan and Jerry Epstein called the bailout economy. That's our economy, a free enterprise. Make money as long as you can. Obvious crises came along. P- public bills, yeah. The biggest one was 2008. Go back to 2008. What happened? Thanks to the deregulation of complicated financial products like derivatives and others, initiative of Larry Summers, the, the banking industry and so on, under Clinton, You got a crash in the housing industry. It all collapsed. Plenty of money made, but a crash. Then it led to a crash in the financial industries. The Congress did pass legislation, TARP legislation. had two components. One component was to bail out the gangsters who had caused the crisis by subprime mortgages, loans they know would never be paid, and distribute them through derivatives, so nobody who owns what, and so on. So bail those guys out. There was a second part of the legislation. Do something for the victims, the people who had lost their homes, who'd been kicked out on the street with foreclosures. Do something for them. Well, guess which half of the legislation Obama implemented? Okay. It was such a scandal that the the Inspector General of the Treasury Department, uh, Neil Borofsky, wrote a op-eds and even a book about it, denouncing what had happened. No effect. That's the way the institutions work. It did have an effect in the working class. Lots of workers who voted for Obama, believing this uh, hope and change, uh, shifted. their Trump voters. And they have reasons. We were betrayed by the party that claimed to be for us.
2: You're listening to Noam Chomsky, When Lunatics Run the Asylum. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us at one 800 1977 Again, that's one 800 Triple four one nine seven seven. Our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. The Ukraine war is now in its second year with no end in sight. China has proposed a peace plan uh, to end the war. What are the chances of realistic chances of that happening anytime soon?
1: Depends on the participants in the war. Almost the entire world, Global South, it's most of the world, is calling for some kind of negotiated settlement to put an end to the horrors before they get worse. Of course, the invasion is a criminal act of aggression. No question about that. Ukrainians have a right to defend themselves. I don't think there should be any question about that. The question is, will the United States agree to allow negotiations to take place. The official U.S. position is the war must continue in order to severely weaken Russia. In fact, the United States is actually getting a bargain out of this, so much so that it's being openly discussed in the United States and Britain with a small fraction of the colossal U.S. military budget the us is severely degrading its major military opponent russia doesn't have much of an economy but has a huge military that's a bargain you can ask whether that's why they're doing it but it's a fact there's a pretext the pretext is if we continue to support the war we'll put ukraine in a better negotiating position who says who says they'll be in a better negotiating position? I think they'll very likely be in a worse negotiating position. Ukraine is being destroyed by the war. Economically, virtually their entire armies gone, replaced by new re- recruits, barely trained. Uh, Russia is suffering badly as well. But you look at the relative power, who's going to win in a stalemate? Not a big secret ukraine is likely to be destroyed well u.s position is gotta continue gotta severely weaken russia somehow by some miracle ukraine will be stronger when this goes on britain follows the united states but by now britain especially the tories and kirstarmer's labor party are virtually colonies of the united states it was recently a big uh, discussion at Chatham House, the British uh, counterpart to the Center for Foreign Affairs, almost entirely in favor of uh, escalating the war. Well, what about Europe? So far, European elites are going along with the United States. Populations, it's not at all clear. Public opinion, judging by polls, is calling for negotiations. The business world in Europe is deeply concerned. Putin's criminal aggression was also an act of criminal stupidity from his point of view. Instead of an accommodation with Europe, which is greatly in the interest of both Europe and Russia, their natural commercial partners, Russia has resources and minerals, Europe has technology and industry and so on. That's the basis for the German industrial system which has been so successful instead of that putin handed washington its greatest wish on a silver platter he said okay europe go join the united states don't have an accommodation with us go be a satellite of the united states which means that you will move towards de-industrialization Economist magazine, among others, have been warning that Europe's going to move towards deindustrialization if it continues to join the NATO-based, U.S.-run system, which is most of the world now regards as a proxy war between Russia and the United States over Ukrainian bodies. Well, how's that going to eventuate? Actually, it goes well beyond that. they are very serious issues. Remember that the United States is developing a major war against China, Uh, not only militarily. NATO is now expanded under U.S. demands to the Indo-Pacific. NATO is a Pacific power, meaning the U.S. has Europe in its pocket for its confrontation with China, building up uh, what the United States calls a... encircling China with a ring of heavily armed states with U.S. precision weapons aimed at China, big military maneuvers and the naval maneuvers in the Pacific. Meanwhile, the Biden administration went beyond that uh, to call for a commercial war to prevent Chinese development for a generation. Prevent them, we can't compete with them, so let's prevent them from developing prevent them from getting advanced technology. The supply chains in the world are so intricate that almost everything involves some U.S. uh, input, patents, technology, whatever. The Biden administration says nobody can use any of this for commercial relations with China. Think what that means for the Netherlands. The Netherlands... Has the, most, the world's most advanced lithographic industry, which produces essential parts for semiconductors or chips. Netherlands is being ordered by Washington: stop dealing with your major market, China. It's a pretty serious blow to Netherlands' industry. Will they accept it? We don't know. Same with South Korea. United States is telling Samsung, South Korea, you got to cut yourself off from your major market because we have some patents that you use. Are they going to accept it? Same with Japanese industry. It's right in the balance now. Nobody knows how they're going to react. Are they going to willingly deindustrialize to go along with U.S. policy of global domination? The global south already isn't doing it. They're saying, we make our own, we don't accept the sanctions, we make our own arrangements with China, with Russia, uh, India, Indonesia, Latin American countries. This is a major confrontation developing up in the world scene. And to go back to the question about the banks, I think Krugman's right, nobody knows. The Fed now has a real problem. If they raise interest rates... It's going to increase the attack on the banks. If they don't lower interest rates, it's going to increase the inflation. that raises another question. What's causing the inflation? Well, there's fairly reasonable evidence from Economic Policy Institute, economists, Joseph Stiglitz and others, that a large part of the inflation is just market power. Take food prices. Food prices just shot up last year, one of the highest growths in 50 years. Meanwhile, the half a dozen monopolies that own the food distribution system, Cargill, Tyson, the rest, have profits coming out of their ears. Well, one way to cut back inflation is for them to cut prices. That's not the way capitalism works. If you can make money, you make money. Well, how much is this in contributing to inflation, according to the EPI analysts, Economic Policy Institute, quite substantially. It's another way the Fed might try to deal with inflation, or the, go- or the Congress could cut down price inflation, which is raising profits to astronomical levels in the monopolies that control the food industry. Incidentally, why monopolies? One of that is part of that is the effect of deregulation. You deregulate the big fish, eat eat a small fish, pretty soon you have a semi-monopolized economy. These are all things that are policy decisions. They're not laws of nature. Could be done differently.
2: The IAEA director, that's the um, International Atomic Energy Agency, U.N. body. Its director general is Rafael Grossi, and he's been warning of the dangers posed by nuclear reactors in Ukraine. Shelling and fighting near the reactors could trigger, Grossi said, a nuclear disaster. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is going ahead with modernization of U.S. nuclear weapons. Is this another example of when lunatics control the asylum? You have these kinds of outcomes?
1: Unfortunately, one of the major problems what Dan Ellsberg and a couple of others have been trying to get people to understand for years is the growing threat of nuclear war. Uh, People talk about it in Congress as if it's a joke. Okay, let's have a small nuclear war with China. One of the, forget his name, but one of the top American generals in the Asia sphere just predicted that we're going to have a war with China in two years. It's beyond insanity. There can't be a war between nuclear powers. The power that launched the first strike would itself be destroyed, even if there's no retaliatory strike, just by the nuclear winter. But this is. Bandied about as if it's a possibility. Meanwhile, U.S. strategic planning under Trump, expanded by Biden, is to prepare for two nuclear wars. One with Russia, one with China. Uh, Yes, the nuclear reactors are a major problem, but it goes beyond that. I mean, suppose the United States is now, now you're sending tanks to Ukraine. Now it's starting jet planes. Well, sooner or later, Russia's likely to attack the supply routes. The United States military analysts are a little surprised that Russia's held back so far. You have leading figures visiting Kiev. Do you remember anybody visiting Baghdad when the United States was pounding it to dust? Not my recollection. In fact, a few peace volunteers were ordered out of the country because the country was being so devastated. Well, Ukraine's being badly hit. It's not that. But who says they won't go on to do it? Who says they won't go on to attack Western Ukraine heavily, including the supply routes, maybe even beyond? Then you get into confrontations with NATO, there's was a Washington Post report a couple months ago reporting that Pentagon recognizes that U.S. personnel are actually directing the uh, advanced weapons in Ukraine that are hitting Russian forces, HIMARS and others. It's moving up the escalation ladder. How far will it go? You have people in the hawkish sector, Atlantic Council, those who say... Maybe we can sink the Black Sea fleet of the Russians. They're going to say, thank you. That was nice. We didn't really care much about them. Or are they going to respond? In fact, let's go back to that Pew poll. They did not even list nuclear war as one of the issues that people could rank. It's considered so low that we don't even think about it. Okay, let's have a nuclear war. Let's have a nuclear disaster that's uh, far worse than Chernobyl. Insanity is the only word that you can use for it. But remember, it's built into the institutions. And if you think about, again, the question you raised before, what about the guy sitting in the CEO chair? What about the Mexican worker on the, in the Permian uh, region? There are answers. They have reasons, and we've got to change those reasons. And
2: speaking of uh, planetary uh, dangers, the START Treaty is an agreement for nuclear arms reduction between the U.S. and Russia, and it's, it establishes limits on deployed strategic uh, nuclear warheads. Recently, Russia suspended its participation in the START Treaty, is this one of the casualties of the current geopolitical situation? And what's the danger of Russia's action?
1: Well, Russia was sharply condemned for that, rightly condemned. They didn't withdraw from the START Treaty. They suspended participation but said they'd continue to live up to it. That was very harmful. Negative act should be criticized. There's a little bit of background. We're not supposed to talk about that. That's called whataboutism. But let's be rational and talk about what's involved. The arms control regime was painstakingly developed over 60 years. A lot of hard work and negotiation. A lot of public pressure. Huge public demonstrations in the United States and Europe led Reagan to accept Gorbachev's proposals for uh, ending the the INF Treaty, the Intermediate Short-Range Missile Treaty in Europe. It was a very important step in 1987. Eisenhower had initiated thinking about the Open Skies Treaty, later developed. Kennedy made some steps. Over time, there was an ABM Treaty, which was very important. Over time, it developed up until George W. Bush. Starting with George W. Bush, the Republican Party has been systematically dismantling 60 years of arms control. Bush dismantled the ABM Treaty. That's very crucial. It's a very great danger to Russia to have ABM installations right on the border of Russia. First of all everyone understands that these are first strike weapons the only thing they could possibly do is deter a retaliatory strike so they're essentially first strike weapons furthermore they're convertible to having first strike missiles installed in them right on the near the russian border there was a pretext by obama and others that these are to defend europe against non-existent iranian missiles Who's gonna believe that? Well, maybe intellectuals can believe it, but nobody in their right mind would. This is an assault against Russia and a dangerous one, and was understood to be. Trump came along, his wrecking ball wanted to destroy the whole story. Got rid of the Reagan-Gorbachev-INF treaty to make it very clear that he meant it right away. Within days, launched the missile which violated the treaty. Tell the Russians we mean it. Uh, okay, that's the INF treaty. Later, he got rid of the Open Skies treaty. He was after the Open Star, the new Star treaty. Didn't quite have time. Biden came in just in time to agree to the Russian proposals to extend it literally within days otherwise it would have expired okay now the russians have suspended that one all of this is race to disaster and the main criminals in this happen to be the republican party in the united states others are by no means saintly far from it and putin's act should be condemned but it's not an isolation
2: Your classic book with uh, Ed Herman is Manufacturing Consent. Uh, If you were updating it today, uh, you would, of course, replace the Soviet Union with China and or Russia and add, of course, the growth of social media. Anything else?
1: We did have a revision of it in 2002, in which we pointed out that we'd made a mistake in the Fifth filter was too narrow. Anti-communism that kind of lost its force for a while and when the Russia collapsed we should have broadened it to just finding an enemy. That's the real filter. And the enemy shifts. For some years it was the global war on terror. Another farce. Now it's uh, China. Pure competitor. Gotta stop them. Russia threatening to conquer the world even though it can't conquer towns a couple of kilometers from the border. So that's those are the new ones. Uh, if it won't be that, it'll be something new. Aliens, who knows? Uh, so yes, that has to be changed. You're right about all of the things you mentioned. Social media is not a small point. It's uh, having a very complex effect on American society. The one effect is ignorance. Is enormous. I mentioned the results on nuclear weapons. Go back to the US invasion of Iraq. Majority of the population thought that Saddam Hussein was responsible for 9 11. I mean, beyond outlandish, but they had heard enough propaganda here so that people believed it. Well, social media are making all of this worse. There was recently a study of very young people. It's called Generation X. Where do they get their news? Almost nobody reads the newspapers. Almost nobody reads television, watches television. Very few people even look at Facebook. They're getting it from TikTok, Instagram. What kind of a world, what kind of a community is going to, Try to understand the world from what they're getting from watching uh, people having fun on TikTok. Uh, the other effect of social media is to drive people into self-reinforcing bubbles. We're all subject to this. I mean, people like me, look at your program, look at Democracy Now!, you don't look at Breitbart, okay? Conversely, the same is true. So people are going into self-reinforcing bubbles, the media, whatever you think about them, have at least some limited range, some discussion. Well, another monster is coming along, the chatbot system. It's a wonderful system for creating disinformation, demonization, defamation. Uh, It'll be picked up by uh, systems that use bots and so on, has very serious danger coming. Probably no way to control it. Uh, I should point out that these systems have essentially no scientific interest. Uh, They're playing, you you like high tech uh, plagiarism, okay, it's fun to play with, but it does have all of these potential, very serious negative effects. These are all major problems. Well, all of that is part of manufacturing consent. Walter Lippmann's dream.
2: Well, the bewildered herd uh, needs to be tamed and directed.
1: Walter Lippmann, he's a remember of the leading public intellectual of the 20th century, Wilson, Roosevelt, Kennedy, liberal, he said the, bewild- the, the population are a bewildered herd and we, the smart guys, have to be protected from the roar and trampling of the bewildered herd as we make the decisions and make set the policy, of course, in the interest of everyone. We're the best and the brightest. Get those people out of our hair and we'll, contr- we'll run the world for everybody's benefit. We've seen how that works.
2: Returning to the United States, how do we overcome propaganda and uh, some techniques for challenging savage capitalism?
1: The way you challenge propaganda is the way you're doing it. Just more. More active, more engaged. As for savage capitalism, there's two steps. One Smaller step is to eliminate the savage part. It's not utopian to say, let's go back to what we had pre-Reagan. Not exactly utopian. Okay. Let's have a moderately harsh capitalism in which there's some uh, minimum wage, decent wages, uh, rights for people, and so on. Far from ideal. But much better than what we've had since. No $50 trillion robbery. That's one step. Another step is to get rid of the core problem. And here we have really effective propaganda. Really effective. Let's go back to the early level, early stages of the Industrial Revolution in the United States. Working people took for granted that the wage contract is a totally illegitimate assault on their basic rights. They turn you into what were openly called wage slaves. Why should we follow the orders of a master for our waking lives? It was considered an abomination. It was even a slogan of the Republican Party under Lincoln that this is intolerable. This lasted through into the early 20th century finally crushed by Wilson's red scare, which basically wiped out the Socialist Party and Labor Movement. Some recovery in the thirties, but not to this extent. Now that's gone. People regard it as their highest goal in life to be subjected to the orders of a master where you're awake for most of your waking life that's really effective propaganda that can change too there already are proposals for worker participation in management of not utopian they have it in germany and other places that can go on to be why don't we take the enterprise over for ourselves why should we follow the orders of some banker in new york we can run this place better ourselves start getting a totally different world at that point I don't think that's all that far away.
2: The lunatics seemingly control the asylum. What signs of sanity are there out there to counter the lunatics?
1: Plenty. There's lots of popular activism. We mentioned some of it. It's in the streets, young people calling for decent treatment of others, concern for others. Sometimes it may go a little bit overboard, but a lot of it is very solid and serious. Extinction Rebellion, Sunrise Movement, Let's Save the Planet from Destruction. Uh, there are lots of voices. Yours, Democracy Now!, Chris Hedges, Lots of Sights, Common Dreams, Truthout, many others. All of these are efforts to create an alternative world in which... Human beings can survive decently. Those are the signs of hope for the world.
2: All right, Noam. Well, thanks a lot. It's great to spend this time with you once again.
1: Good to be with you, as always.
2: Take good care. Thank you. That was Noam Chomsky, When Lunatics Run the Asylum. I talked with him in late March. Noam Chomsky, the legendary scholar activist, is America's leading dissident intellectual. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent, progressive nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog and our Chomsky archive, just go to our website. AlternativeRadio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, AlternativeRadio.org. Professor Chomsky and I have done a series of books together. Our latest is Notes on Resistance. For copies of today's program, Noam Chomsky, When Lunatics Run the Asylum, and for the book, Notes on Resistance, just call us, one 800 444 Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, alternativeradio.org. We're offering MP3s, PDFs, and written transcripts of this program at no charge. Just call us, one 800 444 Special thanks to Balaji Narasimhan. Joe Richie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. just go to the website, alternative radio.org alternative radio.org. Uh, we too are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there.
0: You've been listening to CJSW's airing of alternative radio. For a full listing of episodes, head to the podcast tab on CGSW.com or search up Alternative Radio on the CGSW app. You are listening to CGSW 90.9 FM. Broadcasting in Calgary on Treaty 7 land and Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3.